farmer is helping one of his cows give birth one day, and he sees along the fence row his six-year-old son is watching the whole process wide-eyed, and the farmer thinks to himself, great, here's my six-year-old boy, now I'm going to have to explain to him where babies come from. He goes, wait, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, maybe I don't have to worry about that, I'll just, I'll just ask my little boy if he has any questions, and then I'll answer whatever questions he might have. So after the, the birth was completed, he walked over to where his boy was. He said, do you have any questions about what you just saw? Little boy, still wide-eyed, said, just one, Dad. How fast was that calf going when it hit that cow? <laughs> you know, birth is kind of a mysterious thing, isn't it? When my wife was pregnant with our second child, her due date came and went and no baby. A couple days went by, no baby. A week went by, no baby. Two weeks went by, that baby still hadn't come. I was ready for the baby to come. Our little girl was beside herself with excitement about the idea of a, a little baby, you know, a brother or sister. Martha was ready for the baby to come. He finally came, but he came on his own timetable. He came when he was ready. We are continuing our series through the book of Acts, and we come today to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is a monster chapter. In Acts chapter 2, we are going to witness the beginning of the, the birth of the church. And make no mistake, it comes on God's timetable. I mentioned last week when we were introducing the book of Acts that there would be some times when we'd speed up a little bit during this study. And there'd be other times when we slowed down and we might lump a couple chapters together. There might be a chapter or two we'll skip completely. We're not skipping the second chapter of Acts. In fact, we're going to spend a couple weeks here in this second chapter. You remember that before Jesus ascended back into heaven, one of the last things he told his disciples was, I want you to go to Jerusalem and I want you to wait. Wait in Jerusalem. And I suspect that that was difficult for those people to do in the first century. And I say that because that's difficult for us to do in the 21st century. We're just not very good at waiting. Waiting makes us uncomfortable. We don't like to wait. Maybe you've seen some of the behavioral studies that are done. Uh, they show up on social media pretty often. Uh, maybe you've seen this one with kids, uh, the marshmallow test. Have you seen that? It made its rounds a couple months ago. They take kids into a room and they put a single marshmallow on a plate and they tell the, the little boys and girls, you can eat this marshmallow right now or you can wait and if you don't eat it, I'll come back in 15 minutes with a whole bag of marshmallows and you can have them all. But if you eat this one, you don't get all of them in 15 minutes. And then the adult leaves the room. And it's really sort of cute and funny and, to me, almost cruel to watch these kids agonizing over, do I eat this marshmallow? And they pick it up and they smell it and they look at it. And, you know, they look under the door to see if the adults come. And you can just see the wheels turning, the, the struggle they're in. They want to eat that marshmallow so badly. And most of them cave. You know, most of them, after a minute or two, they just eat the marshmallow. But there are a few that hold out, but it's a struggle. And as you're watching, you sort of feel their pain because they're trying to decide, 
do I eat this marshmallow now or do I wait for what's promised? For us, most of us at least, waiting involves some kind of action. I mean, there's something in us, some kind of reflex in us that makes us want to do something to kind of speed up the waiting process, right? Shorten it. We want to do something so I don't have to wait. But there are times when there's really nothing you can do but wait. You know, you're in a dentist office with six other people who are in a room waiting. You can get frustrated. You can get upset. You can complain that, why did he have me come in at 2 o'clock if he's not going to see me till 3.30? But there's nothing you can do about it. You just got to wait. You get stuck in a traffic jam, you know, kind of pinned to a lane. All you can do is wait. But we don't like to wait. But I'm going to suggest to you this morning that there are times when waiting is the best thing you can do. There are times when the best option you have is to wait. And that's where 120 followers of Jesus find themselves at the beginning of the book of Acts. They are waiting, huddled in a room, no doubt a little bit bewildered, confused, nervous, anxious, probably feeling overwhelmed at the task that Jesus has given them. They're waiting, as they've been told to do, waiting for God to do something. And in Acts chapter 2, God is about to do something. If my math is correct, and I think it is, it's been ten days since Jesus has ascended back into heaven. And I'm sure this group that's been waiting hasn't quite fully comprehended what this whole Christianity thing was going to look like. Jesus had left them with what we call the Great Commission. Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded. And I'm sure those people that were waiting hit the rewind button on that comment a few times, right? Remember what Jesus told us to do? Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded. How's that going to happen? How are we going to pull that off? Do you think those men knew what God was about to do or how God was going to do it or when God was going to do something? It's not like they had the book, right? You know, we have perspective. We have the book. We know what Acts 1, 2, 3, and 4 says. Not one of those men could have stood up and said, Hey, I read Acts 2 last night. It's been 10 days. Get ready. No, they couldn't do that. They just had to trust that Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said, Go to Jerusalem and wait. God's going to do something. So they're huddled in a room. And they're waiting. And they are no doubt praying prayers that maybe sounded something like this. Lord, we are in way over our heads. We have a thousand questions. And we don't have any answers. We're not exactly sure what we're supposed to be doing. In fact, we're not exactly sure what it is you want us to do. You ever pray those kind of prayers? You ever just pray to God, God, I'm not exactly sure what I'm supposed to be doing right now. And I'm not exactly sure, you know, what, what your will is for me in this situation. They were about to be sent out to do something that was way bigger than they were. 
And all they really could do was trust in God that He would give them the power and the resources to pull it off. Not sure how they, that was going to happen. But those men stayed there. They prayed. And they were going to wait for God to move. They humbled themselves. They were completely devoted and deeply depended on a touch from God. Which is really a pretty good place to be. Devoted, dependent, and desperate on a touch from God. It's a good place to find yourself. So let's look at Acts chapter 2. Like I said, it is a monster chapter. A lot of things happen in Acts chapter 2. We learn a lot of things in the second chapter of Acts. We're challenged by a lot of things in this chapter. A lot of reasons why I do the things I do. A lot of reasons why I live the way I live. Why I believe the things that I believe. I can trace back to the second chapter of Acts. But before we get to the first part of that chapter, let me just be very honest this morning. Preparing for this lesson, it's a difficult section of Scripture for me to prepare a sermon for. And I'll tell you why. One reason, there's, like I said, there's a ton of stuff in here. And I've got like 25 or 30 minutes to share a lesson. What do I, what do I leave out? What do I stress? What do I really focus in on? How do I decide what to share, what not to share? But the other reason that this is really a difficult section for me is dealing with the Holy Spirit. And I am not an expert on the Holy Spirit. There's things that I don't understand about the Holy Spirit. There are things that I don't think I'm supposed to understand about the Holy Spirit. But God is about to do something, and He's about to do it through the Holy Spirit. Chapter 2 begins by saying this, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. One verse before that, the very end of Acts chapter 1, Luke writes, Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. I think the they in Acts chapter 1 verse 26 is the same they in the very next verse, Acts chapter 2. I think Luke's talking about the apostles here. The apostles were all together on the day of Pentecost. Most of you in this room probably understand that the events of Acts chapter 2 happened on the day of Pentecost. What does that mean? What is the significance of that? Well, Pentecost was a Jewish festival. In fact, it was one of the three principal festivals of the Jews, the other two being Passover and the Festival of Tabernacles. Pentecost marked the end of the grain harvest. It was observed 50 days after the first ordinary Sabbath, after the beginning of Passover. Penta 50. It was 50 days, which was seven weeks plus a Sunday. So what? What's that mean to us? Well, there is some significance to the timing that's going on here. But the obvious thing that's significant is on the day of Pentecost, the city of Jerusalem was filled with people. There was people there from everywhere. We're going to read later on that there were 17 different regions that are named people that usually weren't in Jerusalem that were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Kind of like the mall, you know, on a Friday after Thanksgiving. Man, the, the Jerusalem is, is bursting at the seams with people. You remember back in, in chapter 1, 
One of Jesus' last words to his disciples were, you're going to be my witnesses first in Jerusalem. We talked about that last week. You're going to start right here in Jerusalem. Wow, what a great opportunity. Because it just so happens on the day of Pentecost, all these people are coming to Jerusalem to observe this festival known as Pentecost. In John chapter 14, uh, verse 16, Jesus makes a promise. Before the cross, he, he tells his followers this, I will ask the Father, and He'll give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. And then, just a few verses later in verse 26, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said to you. Jesus promised those people, the Counselor is coming. The Holy Spirit is promised. And then we get to the second chapter of Acts, verse 2. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. The Holy Spirit descends on these twelve apostles with the sound of a, a mighty rushing wind with what looked like tongues of fire. These men were filled with the Holy Spirit and one more of Jesus' promises comes true. One more promise is fulfilled, spoken by Jesus. Jesus told these guys, go to Jerusalem and wait. It's going to be good. It's going to be big. And I'm sure they were apprehensive. Uh, I'm sure they were a little bit nervous. You know, maybe even wondering, is God really going to come through on this thing? I, I mean, is God really going to do something big? Acts chapter 2, God does something big. Let's take a look. Verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd gathered in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Pergia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonder of God in our own tongue. All these different people speaking all these different languages hear the apostles speak and they're understanding what they're speaking in their own tongue, in their own language. When Martha and I first began dating, I traveled to the heart of Dixie to Birmingham, Alabama, to meet her family for the first time. I had a hard time understanding some of the things they were saying. And I think they were speaking English. It's like they were making up words as they went along, putting things together that didn't seem like they should go together. Her father said, are you fixing to carry Martha to the store? Excuse me? Are you fixing to carry Martha to the store? I didn't want exactly sure what he was asking. Wasn't exactly sure how to answer them. And they had the audacity to say I was the one with the accent. I mean, we're from the same country. And we had a little bit of trouble communicating. 
the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles in Jerusalem and He comes upon them with power. They begin speaking to, Luke says, every nation under heaven. And all those people were understanding what they were saying in their own language. And they asked the same question that I would have asked. How is that possible? How is that happening? Again, 17 different regions are mentioned. More are implied. How can they understand these men in their own language? It's not possible. But it happened. And make no mistake, the miracle was in the speaking and not in the hearing. The Holy Spirit came upon these apostles with power. And again, isn't that exactly what was promised? I'll refer again to Acts 1.8. I think I've quoted this scripture every Sunday this year. Jesus tells His disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. You will receive power. The Lord's church is about to be established and it is about to be established with power. I have a favorite scene from one of my favorite movies, and I like this scene so much that I know I have shared it in different contexts before, but I want to remind you of it or introduce it to you again because I think it fits in this context as well. Uh, the movie Seabiscuit. It's one of my favorite movies. One of my favorite books written by Laura Hildebrand. It's the story of a, a horse back in the 1930s that sort of captured the imagination of the whole country, really. He was purchased by an owner who knew nothing about horse racing, ridden by a jockey that was mediocre at best, trained by what everyone considered to be a crackpot in the horse racing industry. At the beginning of his career, this little horse lost almost every race he entered, but when this team came together, the horse Seabiscuit began to win. And he began to win impressively every time out. In fact, he dominated horse racing on the West Coast. His owner decided to bring him to the East Coast to challenge the more established horses there on the East Coast. In the East Coast, he continued to win every race he ran. He won impressively. Even though he was so successful, he still wasn't considered the greatest racehorse of the day. That distinction belonged to a horse by the name of War Admiral. Triple crown winner, undefeated, huge horse, superior breeding, superior handling. Seabiscuit's owner wanted to race, wanted his horse to race War Admiral. But War Admiral's owner would have none of it. Why should the great War Admiral give in to pressure to race some nag from the West Coast. But just like today, money talks, and the race was finally set, but War Admiral's owner made sure it was on his terms. It's got to be at my home track, Pimlico. It's got to be the distance that I dictate. It's got to be a walk-up start, and it's got to be a match race. Just those two horses in the race. So the race is set. In the days leading up to the race, uh, Seabiscuit's Jockey, a guy by the name of Red Pollard, hurt himself in a freak accident. He wasn't able to ride. So they bring in a replacement jockey, a guy by the name of George. The night before the race, George visits Red in the hospital, and Red is telling him how to run the race. He's telling him about his horse, Seabiscuit. He said, listen, he's going to break for the lead. Let him have it. 
Seabiscuit will take the lead into the first turn going into the back stretch. In the back stretch is where you got to give it up. And George says, what do you mean give it up? you got to back off. You mean let War Admiral take the lead? Yeah. Why would I do that? He said, trust me, George, this horse runs differently when it looks like he's going to lose. Hold him back to the three-quarter pole, then ask him to run. He'll know what to do. The next day, race day, the old trainer comes up and gives George the exact same instructions. Back him off on the backstretch. November of 1938, the race of the century. Forty million people tune in to the radio to listen to this race. At that point, it was the largest radio audience of all time in the history of the world. The race began exactly like they said it would. Seabiscuit breaks for the lead. He has the lead going into the turn, has the lead on the back stretch, and then here's the scene that, that I think is just one of the best scenes in, in, in movies. The owner is sitting in the owner's box watching through binoculars. The old trainer is on the last turn right on the rail, leaning over the rail watching the race. And of course the jockey is out on the race course. And the jockey begins struggling with himself because he has the lead. And, and he's going through this personal you know, torment of, do I trust these guys? Because it doesn't make sense. And as they're going down the back stretch, the old trainer whispers under his breath, okay, son, back him off. Back him off. And the jockey's like, I hope you guys know what you're doing. Okay, Biscuit, easy, easy. And he backs him off. And he slows down. And the crowd gasps. <sighs> he's spent. Sea Biscuit can't win. War Admiral's too big, he's too strong, he's too powerful. War Admiral pulls up even and, and takes the lead. On the rail, the old trainer is saying, wait, not yet, wait. And on the horse, the jockey's going, easy boy, easy, not yet, not yet. And they're going down, they're approaching the three-quarter pole, and the owner stands up in the stands and he says, do it, George, do it now. And on the rail, the old trainer whispers under his breath, Okay, son, turn him loose. And out on the track, the jockey's running. He goes, you ready to run, boy? And on the rail, the, the trainer says out loud, turn him loose. And the jockey pulls up even to War Admiral. He looks at the other jockey and says, so long, Charlie. <laughs> Kicks Seabiscuit, and that horse explodes out from under him. They come thundering around that third tur last turn, and the trainer is screaming at the top of his lungs, turn him loose! Turn him loose! And he just runs away from War Admiral, wins by ten links, going away, and the crowd goes wild. The Holy Spirit has been alive and well and active for all time. But in the first half of the second chapter of Acts, he is turned loose with tremendous power. The Holy Spirit is turned loose on a group of men who were confused and anxious and not knowing exactly what they were supposed to be doing. The Holy Spirit is turned loose with the sound of a rushing wind, with an appearance of fire. The Holy Spirit is turned loose and those men on whom the Holy Spirit would turn loose would never be the same again. I mean, they were dedicated, committed men 
But remember, it wasn't very long ago that they were asking Jesus, are you about to establish your earthly kingdom? And it wasn't very long ago that they were arguing with each other who the greatest was going to be in the kingdom. And it wasn't very long ago that the soldiers came and they ran. Jesus was crucified and they hid. Jesus was risen and they doubted. After the, second, after the first half of the second chapter of Acts, you don't see that ever again from these men. After Acts chapter 2, they have a steeled resolve when it comes to being a witness for Jesus. In the face of intimidation, persecution, imprisonment, stoning, history tells us violent deaths for all of them, they do not waver on being a witness for Jesus. These men understood that the task before them was not as great as was the power behind them. And we would do well to remember the same thing. The task before us, as daunting as it might seem sometimes, pales in comparison to the power behind us and the power within us in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon these apostles. And these Galileans began to speak in other tongues and other languages. And when this hodgepodge of humanity hears them declaring the, the wonders of God, they say, we hear them declaring the wonders of God. I'm in Acts 2, verse 11. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? What was it that the apostles were saying? What were they talking about? Luke says they were talking about the wonders of God. That was their message. This wasn't some parlor trick. <laughs> they weren't just doing it to show that, hey, look at the cool thing that we can do. This very diverse crowd was understanding them in their own language and they were understanding the wonders of God being expounded. And then verse 12 says, they were amazed and perplexed and asked one another, what does this mean? What is going on? What does this mean? It's a good question. Because there was a meaning. And there was a purpose. And we've already mentioned the fact that, that Jesus in the upper room with the apostles talked to them about what the Holy Spirit would do. John 14, 26. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. And then two chapters later, but when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on His own. He will speak only what He hears, and He will tell you what is yet to come. Jesus tells these men that the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, would teach them all things, would guide them into all truth, would remind them of everything that Jesus has said. That's important information. That's important information because I believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. I believe that every single word in the Bible is Spirit-breathed. Yeah, man wrote it. Different men wrote it and penned it. But the Holy Spirit guided them into all truth. That's important. Because in the second half of Acts chapter 2, the rules are going to change. The covenant is going to be replaced. The old law 
is going to be done away with. And everything that we depend on, everything that we hope in, everything that we trust in, in the second half of Acts chapter 2, is true and right because of what happened in the first half of Acts chapter 2. Now, next week, we are going to take a look at the first gospel sermon that's preached by Peter. I think it was his best. And Peter is going to continue to expound on the wonders of God. Never underestimate the power of talking about the wonders of God. That's next week. But this morning we want to offer you an invitation. You know, we read sections of Scripture like Acts chapter 2, and at least myself, if I'm honest with myself, I am just like those people in, in Acts chapter 2. I am amazed and perplexed at what God continues to do. I mean, I, I look at the power of God. I look at the promises that have been, that have been answered. I look at the, 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 the way God has acted in my life. And it's hard to wrap my head around. You know, I am amazed and perplexed. This unbelievable power in this purpose. But it didn't have to be that way. No, God could have used His power in other ways. It didn't have to be His purpose to send His one and only Son to die on a cross for my sins. To give me grace and forgiveness and, and salvation. He could have done something else and He could have done it in another way. But that's what God chose to do. And when I stop and really think about that, I am amazed and I am perplexed by the power and the goodness of God. And I wonder sometimes how often we really stop and think how amazing the power and the goodness of God is. I wonder if we ever stop and say, what is going on? Well, how could this be? It's the power of God in the world and in our lives. For Jesus to die on a cross, to do those things that, you know, it's amazing and perplexing at the same time. So, if there's something going on in your life that you just need the prayers of people who love you, I want to give you that opportunity. Uh, there'll be some people in front of the auditorium to meet you there. I want to remind you that uh, following our last song in here, our prayer room that's located here going uh, towards the Family Life Center is also going to be staffed uh, with some people there if you'd like prayers on a more private nature. Um, if we can help you in any way this morning, we, we invite you to come. Let's stand and sing.